Volume Three, Chapter Two of the Seaboard Parish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock. The Seaboard Parish by George MacDonald. Chapter Two our last shore dinner the next day was very lovely i think it is the last of the kind of which i shall have occasion to write in my narrative of the seaboard parish i wonder if my readers are tired of so much about the common things of nature i reason about it something in this way we are easily affected by the smallest things that are of the unpleasant kind that we ought to train ourselves to the influence of those that are of the opposite nature. The unpleasant ones are like the thorns which make themselves felt as we scramble, for we often do scramble in a very undignified manner, through the thickets of life, and, feeling the thorns, we grumble, and are blind to all but the thorns. The flowers and the lovely leaves and the red berries and the clusters of filberts and the birds' nests do not force themselves upon our attention as the thorns do, and the thorns make us forget to look for them. But the scratch would be forgotten, and that in mental hurt is often equivalent to a cure, for a forgotten scratch on the mind or heart will never fester if we but allow our being a moment's repose upon any of the quiet, waiting, unobtrusive beauties that lie around the half-trodden way, offering their gentle healing, and when I think how, not unfrequently, otherwise noble characters are anything but admirable when under the influence of trifling irritations, the very paltriness of which seem what the mind which would at once rouse itself to a noble endurance of any mighty evil i would gladly help so with the sweet anecdotes to defeat the fly in the ointment of the apothecary that the whole pot shall send forth a pure savour we ought for this to cultivate the friendships of little things beauty is one of the surest antidotes to vexation often when life looks dreary about me for some real or fancied injustice or indignity, has a thought of truth been flashed into my mind from a flower, a shape of frost, or even a lingering shadow, not to mention such glories as angel-winged clouds, rainbows, stars, and sunrises. Therefore I hope that in my loving delay over such aspects of nature, has impressed themselves upon me in this most memorable part of my history i shall not prove wearisome to my reader for therein i shall utterly contravene my hope and intent in the recording of them this day there was to be an unusually low tide and we had reckoned on enlarging our acquaintance with the bed of the ocean of knowing a few yards more of the millions of miles lapped in the mystery of waters. It was to be low water about two o'clock, and we resolved to dine upon the sands. But all the morning the children were out playing on the threshold of old Neptune's palace, 
for in his quieter mood he will, like a fierce mastiff, let children do with him what they will. I gave myself a whole holiday, sometimes the most precious part of my life, both for myself and those for whom I labor, and wandered about on the shore, now passing the children, and assailed with a volley of cries and entreaties to look at this one's castle and that one's ditch, now leaving them behind, with what in its ungraduated flatness might well enough personate an endless desert of sand between, over the expanse of which I could imagine them disappearing on a far horizon whence, however, a faint occasional cry of excitement and pleasure would reach my ears. The sea was so calm, and the shore so gently sloping, that you could hardly tell where the sand ceased and the sea began. The water sloped to such a thin pellicle, thinner than any knife's edge, upon the shining brown sand, and you saw the sand underneath the water to such a distance out, Yet this depth, which would not drown a red spider, was the ocean. In my mind I followed that bed of shining sand, bared of its hiding waters, out and out till I was lost in an awful wilderness of chasms, precipices, and mountain peaks, in whose caverns the sea serpent may dwell, with his breath of pestilence, the kraken with his scaly rind, may there be sleeping, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, while faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides, as he lies, battening upon huge sea-worms in his sleep, there may lie all the horrors that Schiller's diver encountered, the frightful mulch, and the worst of all, to which he gives no name, which came creeping with a hundred knots at once, but here are only the gracious rainbow's woven shells, an evanescent jelly or two, and the queer baby crabs that crawl out from the holes of the bordering rocks. What awful gradations of gentleness lead from such as these down to those cabins where wallow the inventions of nature's infancy, when the little child of untutored imagination, she drew on the slate of her fancy creations in which flitting shadows of beauty served only to heighten the shuddering, gruesome horror. The sweet sun and air, the hand of man, and the growth of the ages have all but swept from such upper planes of the earth. What hunter's bow has twanged, what adventurer's rifle has cracked in those leagues of mountain waste, vaster than all the upper world can show, where the beasts of the ocean graze the seaweed, their pasture. Diana of the silver bow herself, when she descends into the interlunar caves of hell, sends no such monsters fleeing from her spells. Yet if such there be, such horrors too must lie in the undiscovered caves of man's nature, of which all this outer world is but a typical analysis. By equally slow gradations may the inner eye descend from the truth of a Cordelia to the falsehood of an Iago, 
as these golden sands sloped from the sunlight into the wallowing abyss of darkness even so from the love of the child to his holy mother slopes the inclined plane of humanity to the hell of the sensualist but with one difference in the moral world i said aloud as i paced up and down on the shimmering margin that everywhere in the scale the eye of the all-seeing father can detect the first quiver of the eyelid that would raise itself heavenward responsive to his waking spirit i lifted my eyes in the relief of the thought and saw how the sun of the autumn hung above the waters oppressed with the mist of its own glory far away to the left a man who had been clambering on a low rock inaccessible save in such a tide gathering muscles threw himself into the sea and swam ashore above his head the storm tower stood in the stormless air the sea glittered and shone and the long-winged birds knew not which to choose the balmy air of the cool deep now flitting like arrowheads through the one now alighting eagerly upon the other to forsake it anew for the thinner element i thanked god for his glory oh papa it's so jolly so jolly shouted the children as i passed them again what is it that's so jolly charlie i asked my castle screeched harry in reply only it's tumbled down the water would keep coming in underneath i tried to stop it with a newspaper cried charlie but it wouldn't so we were forced to let it be and down it went into the ditch we blew it up rather than surrender said dora we did only harry always forgets and says it was the water did it i drew near the rock that held the bath i had never approached it from this side before it was high above my head and a stream of water was flowing from it i scrambled up undressed and plunged into its dark hollow where i felt like one of the sea beasts of which i had been dreaming down in the caves of the unvisited ocean but the sun was over my head and the air with an edge of winter was about me i dressed quickly descended on the other side of the rock and wandered again on the sands to seaward of the breakwater which lay above looking dry and weary and worn with years of contest with the waves which had at length withdrawn defeated to their own country and left it as if to victory and a useless age of peace how different was the scene when a raving mountain of water filled all the hollow where i now wandered and rushed over the top of that mole now so high above me and i had to cling to its stones to keep me from being carried off like a bit of floating seaweed this was the loveliest and strangest part of the shore several long ridges of rock of whose existence i scarcely knew worn to a level with the sand hollowed and channeled with the terrible run of the tide across them and looking like the old and outworn cheek teeth of some awful beast of prey stretched out seaward here and there among them rose a well-known rock but now so changed in look by being lifted all the height between the base on the waters and the second base in the sand that i wondered at each 
walking round and viewing it on all sides. It seemed almost a fresh growth out of the garden of the shore, with uncouth hollows around its fungus root, and a forsaken air about its brows as it stood in the dry sand and looked seaward. But what made the chief delight of the spot, closed in by rocks from the open sands, was the multitude of fairy rivers that flowed across it to the sea. The gladness these streams gave me I cannot communicate. The tide had filled thousands of hollows in the breakwater, hundreds of cracked basins in the rocks, huge sponges of sand, from all of which, from cranny and crack, and oozing sponge. The water flowed in restricted haste back, back to the sea, tumbling in tiny cataracts down the faces of the rocks, bubbling from their roots as from wells, gathering in tanks of sand, and overflowing in broad, shallow streams, curving and sweeping in their sandy channels, just like the great rivers of the continent here spreading into smooth silent lakes and reaches, here babbling along in ripples and waves innumerable, flowing, flowing, to lose their small beings in the same ocean that met on the other side of the waters of the Mississippi, the Oronoco, the Amazon. All their channels were of golden sand, and the golden sunlight was above and through and in them all gold and gold met with the waters between and what gave an added life to their motion was that all the ripples made shadows of the clear yellow below them the eye could not see the rippling on the surface but the sun saw it and drew it in multitudinous shadowy motions upon the sand with the play of a thousand fancies of gold burnished and dead of sunlight and yellow trembling melting curving blending vanishing ever ever renewed it was as if all the watermarks upon a web of golden silk had been set in wildest yet most graceful curvilinear motion by the breath of a hundred playful zephyrs my eye could not be filled with seeing i stood in speechless delight for a while gazing at the endless ending which was the humor of the game, and thinking how in all God's works the laws of beauty are wrought out in evanishment, in birth and death. There, there is no hoarding, but an ever-fresh creating, an eternal flow of life from the heart of the all-beautiful. Hence even the heart of man cannot hoard. His brain or his hand may gather into its box and hoard, but the moment the thing has passed into the box, the heart has lost it and is hungry again. If a man would have, it is the giver he must have, the eternal, the original, the ever-outpouring is alone within his reach. The everlasting creation is his heritage. Therefore all that he makes must be free to come and go through the heart of his child. He can enjoy it only as it passes, can enjoy only its life, its soul, its vision, its meaning, not itself. To hoard rubies and sapphires is as useless and hopeless for the heart 
as if I were to attempt to hoard this marvel of sand and water and sunlight in the same iron chest with the musty deeds of my wife's inheritance. Father, I murmured half aloud, thou alone art, and I am because thou art. Thy will shall be mine. I know that I must have spoken aloud because I remember the start of consciousness and discomposure occasioned by the voice of Percival greeting me. I beg your pardon, he added. I did not mean to startle you, Mr. Walton. I thought you were only looking at nature's child play, not thinking. I know few things more fit to set one thinking than what you have very well called nature's child play, I returned. Is nature very heartless now, do you think, to go on with this kind of thing at our feet, when away up yonder lies the awful London, with so many sores festering in her heart? You must answer your own question, Mr. Walton. You know I cannot. I confess I feel the difficulty deeply. I will go further and confess that the discrepancy makes me doubt many things I would gladly believe. I know you are able to distinguish between the glad unbelief and the sorrowful doubt. Else were I unworthy of the humblest place in the kingdom, unworthy to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, I answered, and recoiled at the sound of my own words for they seemed to imply that I believed myself worthy of the position I occupied. I hastened to correct them. But do not mistake my thoughts, I said. I do not dream of worthiness in the way of honor, only of fitness for the work to be done. For that I think God has fitted me in some measure. The doorkeeper's office may be given him, not because he has done some great deed worthy of the honor, but because he can sweep the porch and scour the threshold, and will, in the main, try to keep them clean. That is all the worthiness I dare to claim, even to hope that I possess. No one who knows you can mistake your words except willfully, returned Percival courteously. Thank you, I said. Now I will just ask you, in reference to the contrast between human life and nature, how will you go back to your work in London, after seeing all this child's and other plays of nature? Suppose you had nothing more here but rain and high seas and sea fogs, would you have been better fitted for doing something to comfort those who know nothing of such influences than you will be now? One of the most important qualifications of a sick nurse is a ready smile. A long-faced nurse in a sick room is a visible embodiment and presence of the disease against which the eager life of the patient is fighting in agony. Such ought to be banished, with their black dresses and their morning shop looks, from every sick chamber, and permitted to minister only to the dead who do not mind looks. With what a power of life and hope does a woman young or old, I do not care, with a face of the morning, a dress like the spring, a bunch of wild flowers in her hand, with the dew upon them, and perhaps in her eyes too. I don't object to that. That is sympathy, not the worship of darkness. 
with what a message from nature and life does she looking death in the face with a smile drawn upon the vision of an invalid she brings a little health a little strength to a fight a little hope to endure actually lapped in the folds of her gracious garments for the soul itself can do no more than any medicine if it be fed with the truth of life but you are not i beg your pardon for interposing on your eloquence with dull objection said percival are you not begging all the question is life such an affair of sunshine and gladness if life is not then i confess all this show of nature is worse than vanity it is a vile mockery life is gladness it is the death in it that makes the misery we call life in death life and hence the mistake if gladness were not at the root whence its opposite sorrow against which we arise from which we recoil with which we fight we recognize it as death the contrary of life there could be no sorrow but for a recognition of primordial bliss this in us that fights must be life it is the nature of light not of darkness darkness is nothing until the light comes this very child play as you call it of nature is her assertion the secret that life is the deepest that life shall conquer death those who believe this must bear the good news to them that sit in the darkness and the shadow of death our lord has conquered death yea the moral death that he called the world and now having sown the seed of light the harvest is springing in human hearts is springing in this dance of radiance and will grow and grow until the hearts of the children of the kingdom shall frolic in the sunlight of the father's presence nature has god at her heart she is but the garment of the invisible god wears his singing robes in a day like this and says to his children be not afraid your brothers and sisters up there in london are in my hands go and help them i am with you bear to them the message of joy tell them to be of good cheer i have overcome the world tell them to endure hunger and not sin to endure passion and not yield to admire and not desire sorrow and pain are serving my ends for by them will i slay sin and save my children i wish i could believe as you do mr walton i wish you could but god will teach you if you are willing to be taught i desire the truth mr walton god bless you god is blessing you i said amen returned percival devoutly and we strolled away together in silence towards the cliffs the recession of the tide allowed us to get far enough away from the face of the rocks to see the general effect with lisping of the inch-deep wavelets at our heels we stood and regarded the worn yet defiant the wasted and jagged yet reposeful face of the guardians of the shore who could imagine in weather like this and with this baby of a tide lying behind us low at our feet and shallow as the water a schoolboy pours upon his slate to wash it withal 
that those great cliffs before us bear on their front the scars and dints of centuries of chiliads of stubborn resistance of passionate contest with this same creature that is at this moment unable to rock the cradle of an infant look behind you at your feet mr percival look before you at the chasms rents caves and hollows of those rocks i wish you were a painter mr walton he said i wish i were i returned at least i know i should rejoice in it if it had been given me to be one but why do you say so now because you have always some individual predominating idea which would give interpretation to nature while it gave harmony reality and individuality to your representation of her i know what you mean i answered but i have no gift whatever in that direction i have no idea of drawing or of producing the effects of life and shade though i think i have a little notion of colour perhaps about as much as the little london boy who stopped a friend of mine once to ask the way to the field where the buttercups grew had of nature i wish i could ask your opinion of some of my pictures that i should never presume to give i could only tell you what they made me feel or perhaps only think some day i may have the pleasure of looking at them may i offer you my address he said and took a card from his pocket-book it is a poor place but if you should happen to think of me when you are next in london i shall be honoured by your paying me a visit i shall be most happy i returned taking his card did it ever occur to you in reference to the subject we were upon a few minutes ago how little you can do without shadow in making a picture little indeed answered percival in fact it would be no picture at all i doubt if the world would fare better without its shadows but it would be a poor satisfaction with regard to the nature of god to be told that he allowed evil for artistic purposes it would indeed if you regard the world as a picture but if you think of his art as expended not upon the making of a history or a drama but upon the making of an individual a being a character then i think a great part of the difficulty concerning the existence of evil which oppresses you will vanish so long as a creature has not sinned sin is possible to him does it seem inconsistent with the character of god that in order that sin should become impossible he should allow sin to come that in order that his creatures should choose the good and refuse the evil in order that they might become such with their whole nature infinitely enlarged as to turn from sin with a perfect repugnance of the will he should allow them to fall that in order that from being sweet childish children they should become noble childlike men and women he should let them try to walk alone why should he not allow the possible in order that it should become impossible for possible it would ever have been even in the midst of all the blessedness until it had been and had been thus destroyed thus sin is slain uprooted and the war must ever exist 
it seems to me, where there is creation still going on. How could I be content to guard my children so that they should never have temptation, knowing that in all probability they would fail if at any moment it should cross their path? Would the deepest communion of father and child ever be possible between us? Evil would ever seem to be in the child, so long as it was possible it should be there developed. And if this can be said for the existence of moral evil, the existence of all other evil becomes a comparative trifle, nay, a positive good, for by this the other is combated. I think I understand you, returned Percival. I will think over what you have said. These are very difficult questions. Very. I don't think argument is of much use about them, except as it may help to quiet a man's uneasiness a little, and so give his mind peace to think about duty. For about the doing of duty there can be no question, once it is seen and the doing of duty is the shortest, in very fact, the only way into the light. As we spoke, we had turned from the cliffs and wandered back across the salt streams to the sands below. From the direction of the house came a little procession of servants, with Walter at their head, bearing the preparations for our dinner. Over the gates of the lock, down the sides of the embankment of the canal, and across the sands, in the direction of the children, who were still playing merrily. Will you join our early dinner, which is to be out of doors, as you see, somewhere hereabouts on the sands, I said. I shall be delighted, he answered, if you will let me be of some use first. I presume you mean to bring your invalid out. Yes, and you shall help me carry her, if you will. That is what I had hoped, said Percival, and we went together towards the parsonage. As we approached, I saw Winnie sitting at the drawing-room window, but when we entered the room, she was gone. My wife was there, however. Where is Winnie? I asked. She saw you coming, she answered, and went to get Connie ready, for I guessed Mr. Percival had come to help you carry her out but I could not help doubting there might be more than that in Winnie's disappearance. What if she should have fallen in love with him, I thought, and he should never say a word on the subject. That would be dreadful for us all. They had been repeatedly but not very much together of late, and I was compelled to allow to myself that if they did fall in love with each other it would be a very natural on both sides for there was evidently a great mental resemblance between them, so that they could not help sympathizing with each other's peculiarities. And anyone could see what a fine couple they would make. Winnie was much taller than Connie, almost the height of her mother. She had very fair skin and brown hair, a broad forehead, a wise, thoughtful, often troubled face, a mouth that seldom smiled, but on which a smile seemed always asleep, and round soft cheeks that dimpled like water when she did smile. I have described Percival before. Why should not two such walk together along the path to the gates of the light? And yet I could not help some anxiety. 
I did not know anything of his history. I had no testimony concerning him from anyone that knew him. His past life was a blank to me, his means of livelihood probably insufficient, certainly, I judged, precarious, and his position in society. But there I checked myself. I had had enough of that kind of thing already. I would not willingly offend in that worldliness again. The God of the whole earth could not choose that I should look at such works of his hands after that fashion, and I was his servant, not Mammon's or Belial's. All this passed through my mind in about three turns of the winnowing fan of thought. Mr. Percival had begun talking to my wife, who took no pains to conceal that his present was pleasant to her, and I went upstairs, almost unconsciously, to Connie's room. When I opened the door, forgetting to announce my approach as I ought to have done, I saw Winnie leaning over Connie, and Connie's arm around her waist. Winnie started back, and Connie gave a little cry, for the jerk thus occasioned had hurt her. Winnie had turned her head away, but turned it again at Connie's cry, and I saw a tear on her face. My darlings, I beg your pardon, I said. It was very stupid of me not to knock at the door. Connie looked up at me with large resting eyes and said, It's nothing, Papa. Winnie is in one of her gloomy moods and didn't want you to see her crying. She gave me a little pull, that was all. It didn't hurt me much, only I'm such a goose. I'm in terror before the pain comes. Look at me, she added, seeing, doubtless, some perturbation on my countenance. I'm all right now, and she smiled in my face perfectly. I turned to Winnie, put my arm about her, kissed her cheek, and left the room. I looked round at the door and saw that Connie was following me with her eyes, but Winnie's were hidden in her handkerchief. I went back to the drawing-room, and in a few minutes Walter came to announce that dinner was about to be served. The same moment Winnie came to say that Connie was ready. She did not lift her eyes or approach to give Percival any greeting, but went again as soon as she had given her message. I saw that he looked first concerned and then thoughtful. Come, Mr. Percival, I said, and he followed me up to Connie's room. Winnie was not there, but Connie lay, looking lovely, all ready for going. We lifted her and carried her by the window out on the down, for the easiest way through the longest was by the path to the breakwater, along his broad back and down from the end of it upon the sands. Before we reached the breakwater, I found that Winnie was following behind us. We stopped in the middle of it and set Connie down, as if I wanted to take a breath, but I had thought of something to say to her, which I wanted Winnie to hear without its being addressed to her. Do you see, Connie, I said, how far off the water is? Yes, Papa, it is a long way off. I wish I could get up and run down to it. You can hardly believe that all between, all those rocks and all that sand, will be covered before sunset. I know it will be, but it doesn't look likely, does it, Papa? Not the least likely, my dear. 
do you remember that stormy night when i came through your room to go out for a walk in the dark remember it papa i cannot forget it every time i hear the wind blowing when i wake in the night i fancy you are out in it and have to wake myself up quite to get rid of the thought well connie looked down into the great hollow there with rocks and sand at the bottom of it stretching far away yes papa now look over the side of your litter you see those holes all about between the stones yes papa well one of those little holes saved my life that night when the great gulf there was full of huge mounds of roaring water which rushed across this breakwater with force enough to sweep a whole cavalry regiment off its back papa exclaimed connie turning pale then first i told her all the story and winnie listened behind then i was right in being frightened papa cried connie bursting into tears for since her accident she could not well command her feelings you were right in trusting in god connie but you might have been drowned papa she sobbed nobody has the right to say that anything might have been other than what it has been before a thing has happened we can say might or might not but that has to do only with our ignorance of course i am not speaking of things wherein we ought to exercise will and choice that is our department but this does not look like that now does it think what a change from the dark night and the roaring water to its fullness of sunlight and the bare sands with the water lisping on their edge away there in the distance now i want you to think that in life troubles will come which look as if they would never pass away the night and the storm look as if they would last forever but the calm in the morning cannot be stayed the storm in its very nature is transient the effort of nature as that of the human heart ever is to return to its repose for god is peace but if you will excuse me mr walton said percival you can hardly expect experience to be of use to any but those who have had it it seems to me that its influences cannot be imparted that depends on the amount of faith in those to whom its results are offered of course as experience it can have no weight with another for it is no longer experience once removed and it ceases but faith in a person who has experience can draw over or derive to use an old italian word some of its benefits to him who has the faith experience must thus in a sense be accumulated and we may go on to fresh experience of our own at least i can hope that the experience of a father may take the form of hope in the minds of his daughters hope never hurt anyone never yet interfered with duty nay always strengthens to the performance of duty gives courage and clears the judgment st paul says we are saved by hope hope is the most rational thing in the universe even the ancient poets who believed it was delusive yet regarded it as an anecdote given by the mercy of the gods against some at least of the ills of life but they counted it delusive 
a wise man cannot consent to be deluded assuredly not the sorest truth rather than a false hope but what is a false hope only one that ought not to be fulfilled the old poets could give themselves little room for hope and less for its fulfilment for what were the gods in whom they believed i cannot say in whom they trusted gods who did the best their own poverty of being was capable of doing for men when they gave them the illusion of hope but i see they are waiting for us below one thing i repeat the waves that foamed across the spot where we now stand are gone away have sunk and vanished but they will come again papa faltered winnie and god will come with them my love i said as we lifted the litter in a few minutes more we were all seated on the sand around a tablecloth spread upon it i shall never forget the peace and the light outside and in as far as i was concerned at least and i hope the others too that afternoon the tide had turned and the waves were creeping up over the level soundless almost as thought but it would be time to go home long before they had reached us the sun was in the western half of the sky and now and then a breath of wind came from the sea with a slight saw edge in it but not enough to hurt connie could stand much more in that way now and when i saw how she could move herself on her couch and thought how much she had improved since first she had laid upon it hope for her kept fluttering joyously in my heart i could not help fancying even that i saw her move her legs a little but i could not be in the least sure and she if she did move them was clearly unconscious of it charles and harry were every now and then starting up from their dinner and running off with a shout to return with apparently increased appetite for the rest of it and neither their mother nor i cared to interfere with the indecorum dora alone took it upon her to rebuke them winnie was very silent but looked more cheerful connie seemed full of quiet bliss my wife's face was a picture of heavenly repose the old nurse was walking about with the baby occasionally with one hand helping the other servants to wait upon us they too seemed to have a share in the gladness of the hour and like ariel did their spiriting gently this is the will of god i said after the things were removed and we had sat for a few moments in silence what is the will of god husband asked ethelwyn why this my love i answered this living air and wind and sea and light and the land all about us this consenting consorting harmony of nature that mirrors a like peace in our souls the perfection of such visions the gathering of them all in one was is i should say in the face of christ jesus you will say that face was troubled sometimes yes but with the trouble that broke not the music but deepened the harmony when he wept at the grave of lazarus you do not think it was for lazarus himself or for his own loss of him that he wept that could not be seeing he had the power to call him back when he would the grief was for the poor troubled hearts left behind 
to whom it was so dreadful because they had not faith enough in his father the god of life and love who was looking after it all full of tenderness and grace with whom lazarus was present and blessed it was the aching loving heart of humanity for which he wept that needed god so awfully and could not yet trust in him their brother was only hidden in the skirts of their father's garment but they could not believe that they said he was dead lost away all gone as the children say and it was so sad to think of a whole world full of grief of death that he could not bear it without the human tears to help his heart as they helped ours it was for our dark sorrow that he wept but the peace could be no less plain on the face that saw god did you ever think of that wonderful saying again a little while and ye shall see me because i go to the father the heart of man would have joined the because i go to the father with the former result the not seeing of him the heart of man is not able without more and more light to understand that all vision is in the light of the father because jesus went to the father therefore the disciples saw him tenfold more his body no longer in their eyes his very being his very self was in their hearts not in their affections only in their spirits their heavenly consciousness as i said this a certain hymn for which i had and have an especial affection came into my mind and without prologue or introduction i repeated it if i him but have if he be but mine if my heart hence to the grave ne'er forgets his love divine know i not of sadness feel i not but worship love and gladness if i him but have glad with all i part follow on my pilgrim staff my lord only with true heart leave them nothing saying on broad bright and crowded highways straying if i him but have glad i fall asleep i the flood that his heart gave strength within my heart shall keep and with soft compelling make it tender through and through its swelling if i him but have mine the world i hail glad as cherub smiling grave holding back the virgin's veil sunk and lost in seeing earthly fears have died from all my being where i have but him is my fatherland and all gifts and graces come heritage into my hand brothers long deplored i in his disciples find restored what a lovely hymn papa exclaimed connie she could always speak more easily than either her mother or sister who wrote it frederick von hardenberg known where he is known as novalis but he must have written it in german did you translate it yes you will find i think that i have kept form though and feeling however i may have failed in making an english poem of it oh you dear papa it is lovely is it long since you did it years before you were born connie to think of you having lived so long and being one of us she returned was he a roman catholic papa 
No, he was a Moravian. At least his parents were. I don't think he belonged to any section of the church in particular. But oughtn't he, Papa? Certainly not, my dear, except he saw good reason for it. But what is the use of asking such questions after a hymn like that? Oh, I didn't think anything bad, Papa. I assure you, it was only that I wanted to know more about him. The tears were in her eyes, and I was sorry I had treated as significant what was really not so. But the constant tendency to consider Christianity as associate of necessity with this or that form of it, instead of as simply obedience to Christ, had grown more and more repulsive to me as I had grown myself, for it always seemed like an insult to my brethren in Christ. Hence the least hint of it, in my children I was too ready to be down upon like a most unchristian ogre. I took her hand in mine and she was comforted, for she saw in my face that I was sorry, and yet she could see that there was reason at the root of my haste. But, said Winnie, who I thought afterwards must have strengthened herself to speak from the instinctive desire to show Percival how far she was from being out of sympathy with what he might suppose formed a barrier between him and me. But, she said, the lovely feeling in that poem seems to me, as in all the rest of such poems, to belong only to the New Testament, and have nothing to do with this world round about us. These things look as if they were only for drawing and painting, and being glad in, not as if they had relations with all those awful and solemn things. As soon as I try to get the two together, I lose both of them. That is because the human mind must begin with one thing and grow to the rest. At first Christianity seemed to men to have only to do with their conscience. That was the first relation, of course. But even with art it was regarded as having no relation except for the presentiment of its history. Afterwards men forgot the conscience almost in trying to make Christianity comprehensible to the understanding. Now, I trust, we are beginning to see that Christianity is everything or nothing. Either the whole is a lovely fable setting forth the loftiest longing of the human soul after the vision of the divine, or is it such a fact as is the heart not only of theology so-called, but of history, politics, science, and art? The treasures of the Godhead must be hidden in him, and therefore by him only can be revealed. This will interpret all things, or it has not yet been. Teachers of men have not taught this, because they have not seen it. If we do not find him in nature, we may conclude either that we do not understand the expression of nature, or have mistaken ideas or poor feelings about him. It is one great business in our life to find the interpretation which will render this harmony visible. Till we find it, we have not seen him to be all in all, recognizing a discord when they touch the notes of nature and society. The hermits forsook the instrument altogether, and contented themselves with a partial symphony, lofty, narrow, and weak. Their example, more or less, has been followed by almost all Christians, 
exclusion is so much the easier way of getting harmony in the orchestra than study insight and interpretation that most have adopted it it is for us and all who have hope in the infinite god to widen its bases as we may to search and find the true tone and right idea place and combination of instruments until to our enraptured ear they all with one voice of multiform yet harmonious utterance declare the glory of god and of his christ a grand idea said percival therefore likely to be a true one i returned people find it hard to believe grand things but why if there be a god is it not likely everything is grand save where the reflection of his great thoughts is shaken broken distorted by the watery mirrors of our unbelieving and troubled souls things ought to be grand simple and noble the ages of eternity will go on showing that such they are and ever have been god will yet be victorious over our wretched unbeliefs i was sitting facing the sea but with my eyes fixed on the sand boring holes in it with my stick for i could talk better when i did not look my familiar faces in the face i did not feel thus in the pulpit there i sought the faces of my flock to assist me in speaking to their needs as i drew to the close of my last monologue a colder and stronger blast from the sea blew in my face i lifted my head and saw that the tide had crept up a long way and was coming in fast a luminous fog had sunk down over the western horizon and almost hidden the sun had obscured half of the sea and destroyed all our hopes of a sunset a certain veil as of the commonplace like that which so often settles down over the spirit of man after a season of vision and glory and gladness had dropped over the face of nature the wind came in little bitter gusts across the dull waters it was time to lift connie and take her home this was the last time we ate together on the open shore End of chapter two